Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. For our um, viewers from afar, I will read our CME code for today, if you'd like to claim CME credit. The code is HQ7Y. And now I have the pleasure of introducing today's speaker, Dr. Rita Redberg. Dr. Redberg is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, core faculty of the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies, and director of women's cardiovascular services for the UCSF National Center of Excellence in Women's Health. She's also the chief editor of JAMA Internal Medicine and has spearheaded the journal's focus on healthcare reform and identification of healthcare services with no known benefit and definite risks, services for which less is more. Dr. Redberg graduated from Cornell University and the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, and she earned a Master of Science in Health Policy and Administration from the London School of Economics. She completed her internship, residency, and cardiology fellowship at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, and then went on to non-invasive cardiology fellowships at both Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York and the Cardiovascular Research Institute of UCSF. She joined the faculty at UCSF and rose through the ranks to full professor. She continues to see patients and to teach students, residents, and fellows in inpatient and outpatient settings. She teaches health policy in the classroom and lectures across the country and around the world, and has served as a professional and research mentor for dozens of learners and junior faculty members. Dr. Redberg is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine. She was a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow and has served on both the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission and the Medicare Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Committee, including a four-year term as chairwoman of the latter. She has an extensive record of community and government service, particularly in the context of promoting high-value care. Dr. Redberg's research interests are in evidence-based practice, technology assessment, and opportunities for healthcare reform. Her research incorporates both her expertise in health policy and her commitment to high-value healthcare, with a particular focus on high-risk devices and the inclusion of women in clinical trials of such devices. Her work has led to numerous high-impact publications in peer-reviewed journals. She's authored several books and has been interviewed and featured in hundreds of radio, television, and newspaper reports. In addition, in addition to delivering grand rounds here this morning and for the Heart and Vascular Center yesterday evening, Dr. Redberg will be participating in a session discussing, discussing hypertension guidelines um, or debating them with Dr. Mark Krieger at the Cardiovascular Symposium uh, in Auditorium ENF at 9.30 this morning. Uh, please join me for, in extending her a very warm welcome uh, to present Grand Rounds this morning on how less healthcare can sometimes be better for you. Thanks very much. I'm really happy to be here, especially at um, Dartmouth, where I think you are kind of world leaders in the area of high-value healthcare, certainly you know, in geographic variation, and thank of Lisa Schwartz and Steve Wallison, who have done a lot of this work, and I think uh, when we talked about my coming here when we were both at the Too Much Medicine meeting uh, a little more than a year ago in Quebec City, um, and I've certainly worked also with um, Dr. Malenka on appropriate use criteria for the American College of Cardiology and, and others. And I'm always uh, happy to talk. I have to, my 
disclaimer is that most of my references are from my own journal, and I'm sorry. <laughs> there are sort of other great journals out there, but it's like a mother, and this is mine. So, um, so just a few minutes, and apologies to Mark and David who already heard this, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about how I got interested in the area of sort of what we um, what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, why less healthcare can sometimes be better for you. And it started, you know, in Brooklyn, which is where I grew up, as I say before it was hip. And, you know, it was a very sort of, I went to public high school. I had a fairly, neither of my parents actually uh, graduated from high school. My father got his equivalency after the service. So we lived fairly in a environment where you did not waste resources. You know, my parents were the original reuse and recycle. And so when I um, got interested in medicine, I had that sort of same approach, and it was really reinforced when I went to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. I was very lucky uh, to work with John Eisenberg, who then at that time was chief of general internal medicine, and I was actually planning to be a general internist at that time. And I was doing a research project with him, and he um, was trying to get the house staff to order less laboratory testing in the inpatients. And he did this by sending them daily notes about what did you learn from these chemists? The chemist seven, it was the electrolyte panel that everyone ordered. What did you learn from this? Did it change the way you managed your patients? Did it influence their outcomes? And it really, uh, did, I would say, that mailing to them did not do much, I think, except annoy them. It didn't have any impact on how staff ordering behavior, and I think the culture is a big part of why how staff are ordering so many tests. But it did have a big impact on me, and really made me start questioning why were we doing all this test, because at that time I was a second or third year medical student, and I hadn't really even thought the question. I assumed that everything that people, you know, senior to me in medicine were doing were for a really good evidence-based reason. So that, um, I ended up taking a year <coughs> out of medical school and had an exchange program called the Toron Fellowship of Great Britain, and I spent a year at the London School of e Economics doing a degree in health policy, but also participating, because I was a medical student, I did some medical rotations during my um, breaks and got to see how the National Health Service worked. And then I, um, 15 years ago, spent a year in Washington, D.C., working in the Senate as a health, Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow, which I think um, some of you here have done. So this is, um, when I, went to, it's not even on here because it was so long ago, but when I went to London, our GDP expenditures were at 9%, and everyone said in the U.S., when we got to 10% of GDP, you know, double digits, that would really sort of change the way we looked at how we were spending money in healthcare. But as you can see here, we're, um, we're well past at 10%. We're now at... Um, over actually 15% and estimated to go over 20% in the next few years of GDP. So we, you know, <coughs> clearly we spend a lot of money in healthcare in the US, 
yet we don't have a universal um, coverage system. As you know, even after the Affordable Care Act, there are many millions, about 25 million Americans who don't have health insurance. And in particular, this was a, you know, a contrast to Britain and to most of Europe, where they spend a lot less money per person on health care, and there is universal coverage. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what, you know, why we have the system we do and the expenditures we do and sort of focus on what we think the current paradigm. And I think what we have a general impression that if some medical care is good, then more must be better. You know, if you take a little bit of a medicine, then taking more of it would be better or having you know, I think patients often think having more tests, you know, if someone comes in and says, I love this particular doctor, and I often when I ask why, just because I'm interested in, you know, how people make these assessments, it's very difficult to really know the quality of your doctor. It's often said, well, they ordered a lot of tests for me. And so I, and I think we also assume that newer technology, you know, is better than older technology. And I think we now have started to talk about prevention in terms of getting a test instead of sort of the old-fashioned prevention, you know, eating good foods, getting lots of fresh air and exercise, although it's a very, very healthy environment here in uh, Hanover, and, and not smoking. And actually, and often it's about cancer screenings, which I'm going to talk about, and cardiac screenings. So I was actually... About 10 years ago, a little less than 10 years ago, having coffee with Deborah Grady, one of my colleagues and a deputy editor of JAMA Internal Medicine. And it was right after the US Preventive Services Task Force issued the mammography guidelines, which, if you recall, this was in 2009. And the task force suggested that women between the ages of 40 to 45 would have more harm than benefit if they underwent mammography. Well, you might remember uh, that that got a very negative reception. Well, look at that. Technology, good job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they were, you know, accused of wanting to save the government money by rationing and, you know, all kinds of. And Congress, you know, in its wisdom, said, you know, we would never take away mammography for women in the ages of 40 to 50. 40 to 50. And Deborah and I were a little bit puzzled and disappointed by that really negative reaction and talked about, well, why was that? And thought, well, the messaging probably wasn't as clear as it could be that there were a lot of harms. I mean, why would anyone want something that where you're more likely to be harmed than help? And I think mammography is a very difficult area because it's become very sensitive. It's easily identified as something women can do and that has been the message for a long time, and now this new message that actually you were more likely to be harmed than helped, um, I think, was confusing. We can certainly talk more. But that was really what led us um, to start talking about a different approach and how we could help, you know, through the journal, try to get the idea that medical care needs to be the right test you know, for the right person at the right time, and not just a sort of blanket approach that it's always good to have a test. And so at that time, we decided we would launch this um, Less is More series, <coughs> How Less Health
result in better health, when we just kind of laid out those principles that I just talked to you about. <coughs> so in this series, and this is uh, what I'm going to just give some examples of, and then um, talk about how I think we can change things in this country and leave some time for discussion. But in this series, um, we look for our, for examples of healthcare where there are definite harms, there is no clear benefit, and we actually don't talk about cost in healthcare because, first of all, cost is a very sensitive issue. As you know, the task force got accused of rationing, even though the task force doesn't talk about cost at all. Um, but also, if something is not going to help you, there's no reason to talk about cost. You're not going to have it, presumably, just because there's nothing you're going to get or benefit from it. So I'm going to use the example of lung cancer screening, which certainly um, has been shown to have benefit in certain groups, but not in all groups. And in particular, uh, I'm going to look at lung cancer <coughs> screening, which I think is a very interesting topic, and I will say I've become very um, interested in in particular because at the time, as Kelly mentioned, I chaired the Medicare Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Commission, and it was during the time that we looked at lung cancer screening. So uh, as you know, well, lung cancer screening was recommended by the task force back in uh, 2013, I believe it was, and it was implemented at the VA, which I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But uh, what the, recommend, the specific recommendation was to uh, do lung cancer screening in smokers who had a 30, I think, to 55-pack year of smoking history between the ages of 55 to 80. And so after the recommendation of the task force, the VA implemented <coughs> this program in a very thoughtful way where they um, had a sort of a shared decision-making kind of visit and talk to patients the way, you know, ideally we would do with all cancer screening, but I think because of limited time and other things, I don't think it happens regularly. But this was a study we published of over 2,000 of the VA patients who had been screened for lung cancer. And so um, it sort of just was the first study we saw that really looked at how was lung cancer screening working in a population, and we know that VA has a fairly high proportion of um, particularly men who have been smokers. And so what they found was really that, so the, I'm just going to highlight the bottom line um, summary, about half of the um, patients, mostly men, signed up for the screening who were eligible. So have elected after having it explained the harms and the benefits not to have the screening, although it would have been covered. <coughs> and that it took a lot of time. It was very hard, the uh, researchers said, to find you know, how many packages of smoking they had in the record. And furthermore, that very few of them actually had early stage cancer. So um, here's the actual data. Uh, of the ones who had screening, about 60% had lung nodules. And about half of those required tracking after the nodules were discovered. 2% um, had further evaluation but didn't actually have cancer. And 31 out of the 2,100 actually had some kind of lung cancer. So uh, the rate of false positive test results 
for lung cancer was almost 98%. And I'll say in the NLST, I think the false positive rate was 96%. So it, that's a very high rate of false positives. I think CT scan is detecting a lot of stuff in the lungs. Um, and a lot of it is not cancer, particularly as we get older and particularly in smokers. Um, the, as I wanted to come back to the Metcalf because Metcalf is going to look at the data, the same data that the task force looked at, but Metcalf in particular is concentrating on data in the older population because we're looking at how will this play out for people that are 65 and older and covered by Medicare. The National Lung Screening Trial was the trial that was the main basis for the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendation. However, as you may remember, the NLST used a comparison of CT versus chest x-ray. Well, chest x-ray prior to the NLST being started had already been shown to chest x-ray screening of smokers for lung cancer had already been shown to have an increased mortality. You know, it not only didn't it work, but it, it seemed to lead to increased mortality, presumably because you were finding a lot of other things leading to other procedures, perhaps that um, didn't always, there were invasive procedures and perhaps there were complications. But so I think when the NLST used CT compared to screening, as opposed to CT versus just having no imaging, what happens is that then the control arm has a lot of the follow-on procedures and complications that occurred. And then compared to CT, the comparison doesn't look as disparate as it would if, if they hadn't had any testing. In other words, I think the NLST should have used a no imaging control arm because using a chest x-ray, which you already knew had increased mortality, made CT look better than it should have. And I actually asked because when we had the METCAP meeting, the PI of the NLST had come to talk about lung cancer screening and asked why they um, didn't use a no imaging control and he um, didn't have any particular reason. At any sort of um, the committee, as I chaired the meeting, I did not vote. But as you can see here on the slide, the Medicare committee, after going through the whole day of you know, reading the evidence, and I will say, although the NLST did show a benefit on all-cause mortality for lung cancer, there were three European trials that were done at the same time that actually did not use imaging as a control, and none of them found a mortality benefit um, for low-dose CT. Those were not considered by the task force, but they were considered uh, by MedCap when we reviewed the data. And because of that, and because of all of the concern about false positives, it turns out low-dose CT is not a very easy test to read for lung cancer. It was um, the radiologist that we talked to was, made it clear that it was took a lot of training. It was very hard to distinguish stuff from actual cancers. And so the committee voted that they had low confidence that lung cancer screening benefits outweighed the harms, and low confidence that the harms of screening would be minimized, and high confidence that evidence gap remained, which is um, why I'm using this as an example of sort of, of less is more. However, as you I'm sure know, Medicare did go on to approve and 
cover lung cancer screening for Medicare beneficiaries despite that negative vote. And we can talk more, but there were a lot of reasons for that. I think mostly there was a lot of lobbying from uh, professional groups, and there was a lot of concern that the task force had already approved this, or that as the task force gave it a grade B recommendation, it was required that insurance companies cover it at first dollar coverage, no co-payment. And so that then there would be this funny kind of gap that all of a sudden when you become 65, you wouldn't be eligible for lung cancer screening. And the recommendation was for people from ages 55 to 80. So at any rate, the um, <coughs> Medicare decided to cover lung cancer screening, but said they would require a shared decision-making visit. So this was uh, from an editorial that Pat O'Malley, one of um, other editors and I wrote about that VA study at the time it was published. Important questions about lung cancer screening when incidental findings exceed lung cancer nodules by 40 to 1. <coughs> so that was what that VA study that I showed you had actually found. And uh, the actual data shows for every 1,000 person screened, 10 were diagnosed with early stage lung cancer. And of course, that's what you're looking for because that's what's potentially curable. But then five um, were going to be diagnosed with advanced stage at the point that it was too late to help. 20 were going to undergo unnecessary invasive procedures, so more than we were diagnosed with cancer. And then 550 were going to experience unnecessary alarm and repeated CT scanning because of, of all of the findings on them. And so it really, I think, would cause one to question the widespread use of lung cancer screening. We then, um, more recently, this was uh, in the last few months, yeah, August, we published an article in JAMA Internal Medicine from the Danish trial on overdiagnosis. And this was the Danish lung cancer screening trial. They did a post hoc analysis. <coughs> they had done lung cancer screening in widespread through Denmark and the Scandinavian countries tend to have really good registries and uh, data collection. They only did it in smokers who had more than 20 pack years of smoking, and 4,000 in the ages, ages 50 to 70. And what they found was a very high, a 67% rate of overdiagnosis um, in the screening group. And so they concluded that the overdiagnosis estimate was very much larger for this than it was in other trials like NLST and in the Italian trial. We actually had a podcast interview with the authors up on the Gemma Channel website where they sort of discussed why their rates were so much higher. And I think it's the bottom line is it's not really clear why their rate was so much higher, although their methodology was, was very rigorous. They think they had more smokers in their group, but they had a higher baseline rate of lung cancer, perhaps. But that um, it's important um, to be more rigorous in future trials to continue to look at overdiagnosis rates because, you know, obviously overdiagnosis is, is a harm and does lead to a lot of unnecessary procedures and concerns. Um, so I added this because I just wanted to mention for a moment about our Teachable Moments series. Teachable Moments is part of the journal where we really want to hear from trainees because we think a lot of um, 
how we start doing, just like my own experience, how we start practicing medicine is shaped when we're in, in medical school <coughs> in our residencies. And so we wanted to hear stories from trainees of things. It started out really as being attached to lessons more, but we, <coughs> somebody ordered, you know, it doesn't have to be a lessons more. It can be something we did um, that we learned from, but it wasn't necessarily uh, something that a patient didn't need. But the um, teachable moments has to be submitted by a trainee and has the senior mentor as the article, as, I'm sorry, senior mentor as the senior author. And so this example was a teachable moment of a patient who came in, it was a woman in her 50s who wanted low-dose CT. So they all are actual cases. She has a 10 pack year smoking history, so you'll know she doesn't actually meet the NLST criteria because it's only 10 pack years and she's 30. And she quit smoking 20 years ago, and the NLST criteria was you had to quit 15 years or less because after that, I think your cancer risk drops significantly. Um, anyway, she had a calculator using the Brock risk calculator, a calculated risk of less than 0.2% but she did have a lower lobe lesion found in screening. And so they wrote this up and published it just as an example of an inappropriately ordered lung cancer screening. The case was low risk, she didn't meet screening criteria, and the sort of teaching point, because we always um, try to, you know, what, what did you learn and what did you all do better from this? And their point was that we can minimize risk through more appropriate patient selection. I will note, um, we did publish around the same time, but not that same issue, an analysis of what is actually happening in the U.S. since the task force recommended um, lung cancer screening with the grade B recommendation. And this study used data from the National Health Interview Survey, which looked at how many people were getting low-dose CT for lung cancer screening. And what they found was that what the percentage of people screened for lung cancer had, had increased about 50%, you wouldn't be surprised, um, in 2015. So after those recommendations and after insurance started covering, then it was in 2010. And that could be a good thing, except that the rates of CT screening increased mostly in never smokers and low-risk smokers. So we're doing more low-dose CT, but we're not doing it in the people that were recommended and that would benefit. And unfortunately, you know, that is often true because the population generally that is recommended for whatever particular treatment is usually um, a small number that meet the actual criteria and a much larger number that don't. And in, for a lot of reasons, a, pe a lot of people that don't fit the criteria and therefore have much greater chance of harm than benefit are the ones ending up getting that procedure. And so. Uh, it certainly raises concerns of overuse. And the last thing, and then I'll examples of things, was an article that we just published, again, in August, on shared, the use of shared decision-making, which I think you know sounds like a great idea, but what they were um, looking at was how was it actually playing out. And so this was a study that looked at the quality of shared decision-making. They used, um, how many of you have heard of Verilog? I haven't heard of Verilog either until we got um, some papers on it. But Verilog is a service that you can buy the data, and it 
takes, I think, I don't know how many, over a thousand physicians across the country who have agreed to have their conversations taped with their patients, and the patients also are informed and have to agree at the time of the visit. And so they, they analyzed, these researchers got that database and analyzed the conversations of patients that were having lung cancer screening to look at the shared decision-making process. And they were, it's a small study. They were only able to find 14 conversations, but they did do a detailed qualitative analysis of those conversations. And what they found was that there was very poor quality of shared decision-making. And it was poor because there was no explanation of the potential harms of screening and that the lung screening discussion was a very short amount of time of the actual visit, which you can imagine because there's a lot of things now and a lot of quality measures that primary care doctors have to do in these visits, and it's hard to squeeze it in. Um, but this is an example, and I'll just uh, read it because it, it basically it says, because of your smoking history, I'd like to get a CT <coughs> scan. This is a new benefit, and insurance companies are paying for it. Okay, I'll set that up. And that was um, the shared decision-making discussion. So they graded them all. There's a scale called option where 100 would be a good score. And the average um, score for the shared decision-making discussions was six. So um, I wrote an editorial failing, failing grade for shared decision-making for lung cancer screening. But not only was it um, <coughs> when it was happening, getting a, no discussion of harms, but it actually turns out in other data that I think I'm going to not show right now, most of the time shared decision-making wasn't happening. So although Medicare, as I mentioned, required shared decision-making when it approved lung cancer screening um, for Medicare beneficiaries and will pay for a shared decision-making visit, which is supposed to be mandatory, the data shows, and um, we have a, another paper in press that shows this, less than 10% of lung cancer screening in Medicare population actually has a shared decision-making visit prior um, to lung cancer screening. So for a lot of reasons, it seems shared decision-making isn't actually happening. And I do think that, you know, there's limited time. I think we don't have a lot of, it's fairly new, and we don't, there's not a lot of education on it. Uh, people have a hard time about talking about harms, it seems, and I think it probably will take a change sort of in culture and education to really implement shared decision-making. Although, strictly speaking, um, we're not supposed to be doing any of the lung cancer screening in particular without shared decision-making. But I think, you know, cancer is a big area where people are very scared, and we've really talked a lot about screening and the importance of screening, and it's really a lot of education to shift the way we think about it. Um, this is uh, one of my favorite studies from Lisa and Steve. This one was on um, cancer, setting, cancer center advertising. And I think we were talking last night about, you know, if you look up at ads for, I, I see them when I go to the gym back in, in California in the morning, there's five TV screens because there's a row of bikes. And that's, I, you know, I don't have the sound on, but I can see the ads. And the ads, the pictures, you know, are people that are happy and walking on the beach. And then the text, which I think is required to be there, is all about, you know, this could kill you, you could get bone marrow dysplasia, you know, you could get deadly infections. 
but everything looks good. So Lisa and Steve, um, we're looking particularly at cancer center, like Cancer Treatment Center of America as, because you know obviously this is a very vulnerable population that really wants to have hope of a cure, and that's what these ads offer, but not with a lot of substance. And um, this article, I think, has some great illustrations, uh, which I'll show in a moment. But the cancer center ads, they you know, were offering hope to patients, um, but with dangers from toxic treatments, and those the dangers are not highlighted in these ads. Um, and these are just some examples from their article of the uh, uh, prostate cancer and the triple negative breast cancer trials that really don't discuss the harms and you know have just like the ads I was sitting on TV these pictures of you know how you could uh, be transformed into a healthy person with the Cancer Center of America treatments without mentioning their toxicity. And they note that the FTC um, should provide guidance and uh, state attorney generals could act faster and more aggressively. And so, uh, and I think that's just one example of sort of an area of cancer treatment that we, again, could be talking more about harms and, and being more realistic. And it's a particularly vulnerable patient population. I, um, just spend a few minutes about uh, cardiac examples. I think I'll maybe skip this one because I really talked too much about cancer screening. Um, this one I'll mention about cardiovascular testing and clinical outcomes in emergency department patients with chest pain. And basically, this was a, a study where um, from Stanford, from the Stanford researchers, where they looked at is cardiovascular testing associated with changes in coronary vascularization or acute MI? And actually, I, uh, we could have debated this later too because the American Heart Association recommends when people come to the emergency room with chest pain that they um, get some kind of, if it's suspected, acute coronary syndrome, which I think has gotten to be a very uh, unclear or vague diagnosis because a lot of atypical chest pain that really doesn't sound cardiac ends up being called acute coronary syndrome, it seems. Um, but the recommendation is that they get some kind of stress testing within 48 to 72 hours. And as you know, you know chest pain is very difficult to evaluate. Emergency room physicians are very concerned about missing somebody who might walk out and have a heart attack and, and sue. And so what these uh, researchers did was a retrospective cohort analysis of almost a million patients that presented to the emergency department with chest pain. They had negative troponins. They did not have EKG changes. And they looked at how many of them got non-invasive testing or coronary angiography within two to 30 days of the emergency room visit as per the recommendation. And what they did, and um, I think the next slide, they did this instrumental variable analysis because, as you can imagine, that's less likely to happen if you come in on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, just because a lot of um, hospitals are not running seven-day-a-week stress labs. And so what they found was that, uh, well, their endpoints, I'll say, are coronary revascularization and acute MI admission up to one year after the emergency room visit. Um, 
they looked at, and you can see the patients they were looking at are kind of a young population. Certainly you can have heart disease in your 40s, although um, this, as opposed to a lot of heart disease, cardiology um, studies where there tend to be about 70% men, this one was 60% women. And as women tend to be about 10 years older when they get heart disease, it kind of does tip you off that this is probably not a heavily um, ischemic burden in this population because they're younger and mostly women. <coughs> um, consistent with the fact, I think, with this is a lot of atypical chest pain. But what they found was that the patients who did have testing within 30 days um, were more likely to have coronary angiography and then, of course, they were more likely to have revascularization, but they were not more likely. Um, there was no difference in acute MI admissions, which is not a perfect proxy, but that was the proxy for how well did you do. So it didn't seem like there was any effect on clinical outcomes. And they, um, as I mentioned, they used this instrumental variable analysis, which is uh, sort of a way to try to do a randomized trial without actually doing the randomized trial, and they, their instrumental variable was the day of the week that you came into the emergency room. Now, ideally, we do a randomized trial, but I don't, I, I think there's been discussion whether you could randomize people coming into the emergency room for chest pain into a testing arm and a no testing arm. Right now, the recommendation, as I said, is to have early testing. And so this was a way to try to simulate a randomized trial. And I think um, it, the instrumental variable analysis addresses the problem of unmeasured confounding. And so I think, uh, actually, um, Ben Sun is uh, now the chairman of emergency medicine at Penn and is leading a study, which is also a retrospective analysis of Kaiser looking at the um, outcomes in a longer-term follow-up of patients who come to the emergency room and don't get stress testing to see for, um, after rule-out or acute event to see whether there is any in improvement in outcomes. And we wrote this editorial suggesting that our current ED approach to acute coronary syndrome is resulting in a lot of testing and admissions, as I just showed you from that um, Stanford study, it costs, the costs are huge. This is over $3 billion in terms of all the extra testing. Remember, you know, often one test will lead to another. Uh, and, and not just the testing, but this is a lot of time. It really leads to a lot of crowding in the emergency room. They're keeping people longer in order to, you know, have them wait for their stress test. It's um, taking up patients' time who are that in the emergency room were kept in our um, short stay unit for a lot longer. And most importantly, there's no evidence that any of this testing actually improves outcomes. So you know, I think in some sense, none of us wants to miss a heart attack, but at some point, we're never going to get to a 0% miss rate. And we're sort of trying to get down there for a lot of reasons, I think, concerned about malpractice and perhaps other reasons. We're doing a lot more testing than I think it would really be justified by the data. Um, so I can give up. Uh, I, as Kelly mentioned, I study medical devices because I think it's low-hanging fruit in terms of where we spend a lot of money in healthcare that has not always been shown um, to improve outcomes. 
And in particular, I look at the regulation process for high-risk devices because a lot of high-risk devices, which I didn't know until I started looking at it about 10 years ago, get on the market without a lot of data or without any clinical trial data. And so this is one example. This was a study that came in, I think, and I have Lawrence here, I think she told me she worked with Bobby Yeh at, um, uh, at the Brigham, which is, I think he's now at Beth Israel. But at any rate, this was a study where they looked at this particular Lariat device. Are we doing Lariat here? Stop doing it. We stopped doing it. I mean, we, we are doing it, I believe, at UCSF. But the Lariat, if you're not familiar, it's like a, it's like a Lariat. It's, it's supposed to circle your uh, left atrial appendage and prevent uh, clots from forming in people that have atrial fibrillation. So, I mean, we certainly, we're all hearing a lot more about atrial fibrillation lately. Um, as the population ages, we see more atrial fibrillation. And we know that people that have atrial fibrillation have a five-fold increased risk of embolic stroke. However, um, we don't know the best way to prevent stroke besides anticoagulation, which we do know reduces um, stroke risk. But because a lot of thrombi are thought to come from the left atrial appendage, there is an idea that closing the left atrial appendage would prevent those thrombi and therefore prevent embolic stroke. And as you know, sometimes when patients with rheumatic heart disease go to surgical valve replacement, they'll do um, a left atrial appendage ligation or um, close it. But the data is not clear that that actually prevents stroke. But what this device does is um, non-invasive. Through the cath lab, they put in this device, go across the atrial septum, and essentially lasso the left atrial appendage to prevent stroke. So it got on the market through a 510K. So 510K is actually not meant for high-risk devices. It's meant <coughs> for devices that have already on the market and seem to be working okay. There's no requirement for safety and, or effectiveness, and there's no requirement for clinical trials for a 510K clearance. So this device got cleared by the FDA because it said that it was substantially equivalent to another device, an abdominal suture, that's used for an abdominal suture skin approximation. So the FDA clears this Lariat device that's going to go inside your heart as being substantially equivalent to this abdominal suture. No clinical trials, and it's on the market. And at the time we got this paper, you know, I did the internet search to see if, if centers were doing it, and I found a lot of ads from you know, online ads from various centers saying, come to us, you know, we have this great new technology, Valeria. Um, the company that made it, I think it's called Center Heart. So, I mean, if the FDA had looked at the patent application for this company at the same time that they were clearing this as being substantially equivalent to an abdominal suture, they would have noticed that the patent application said this is an innovative new device, not substantially equivalent to anything, and was clearly intended to be used in the left atrial appendage. There was never any intention of using it, like an abdominal suture closure. However, it got on the market for that reason, um, was widely used off-label, and actually is very similar to the Watchman device, which for reasons um, I don't know, went through the pre-market approval pathway and did have to have randomized trials where Lariat did not. 
so what this study um, basically showed, they did a review of all of the reports in the literature looking at the Lariatovite. Um, they found five, they were pretty, uh, about, pretty small, about 300. They found that they had successful closure of the left atrial appendage in 90% of those. However, there were 2.3% um, had urgent cardiac surgery, and there was one death. And so again, you know, a procedure that has no clear benefit because it hasn't actually been studied. We don't know if these work, and if they do, who they would work in because they got on the market um, through a mechanism without requiring clinical trial. And I would say definite harm. So after this study was published, uh, the companies announced that they were going to do, I think, a, a big registry in conjunction with Heart Rhythm Society and the American College of Cardiology, and that is now currently in effect. So Lariat is still on the market, but now they are collecting data um, in the left atrial appendage registry, and hopefully we'll know a little more soon. But I think the example raises questions about the, the whole 510k process, which uh, we could talk more about later, but the IOM basically recommended in 2011 that the FDA abandon the 510k process because it could not assure safety and effectiveness, but that recommendation was rejected. Um, but there is no requirement for safety and efficacy. So I think, I'll, uh, I'm gonna skip to my, So concluding slide so that we can, this is just a plug for teachable moments. So just to wrap up in the next few minutes and sort of what I think we can do uh, to improve and get, move more towards high value care. So I think, you know, obviously as I just showed you in that example, that we should have more requirements both as a profession and in the FDA for better evidence before we start using a lot of uh, tests, procedures. You know, the way we seem to work, and I think human nature, is once we start doing something, certainly once we buy equipment, once we get trained for it, once we start believing in it, it's very hard to change. And that's why, in particular, I look at the FDA because I think um, once we once things get approved, insurance starts covering it, that's when it becomes part of our culture and you know, it becomes like the train leaving the station. And so I think we really have to have more rigorous requirements than we do now. I showed you one example, but there are many uh, devices, procedures that are to do a few examples that we currently use that really don't have good evidence of benefit and some don't even have any clinical trials. So I think that we should have a requirement for certainly high-risk devices and procedures for um, randomized clinical trials that have meaningful clinical outcomes because I think there's a lot of movement currently towards uh, surrogate outcomes which are faster to get, they're cheaper and um, for the companies which are often paying for the trials, you know, from a company point of view, you want to get your product on the market as quickly as possible because that's when you start realizing a return on your investment. From a patient and physician point of view, I think we want to be sure drugs and devices are safe and effective before they're on the market. And you know, there's that balance between innovation and safety. 
I think that we should be erring on the side of getting more data because it's so hard to change practice and change uh, usage patterns after things are in general used. What's used in other um, countries are, as I um, started out earlier in Britain, is the global budget, which we don't do here. So they actually decide how much is going to be spent on healthcare and then try to decide what's the best way to spend that for the population covered. <coughs> I think um, countries that spend less often have a much bigger primary care workforce. Specialists cost a lot more money and use a lot more procedures than primary care. There are often are restrictions of covered services, which we're starting to talk about in this country. Uh, other countries do cost-effective analyses, which for peculiar reasons we do not do in this country ever. Um, in terms of Medicare and most private insurance analyses, uh, and uh, we are starting to use you know, patient-centered medical homes, more care management, and things like that in this country. I also think we have to go from a fee-for-service to a pay-for-value kind of mentality, like a value-based payment um, methodologies, methodologies, and there are some alternative payment models um, that are being tested currently. I think often physicians say they ordered the test because they wanted to reassure the patient. I think uh, health professionals talking to patients is a really effective way to reassure patients, which is often what people want, I think, when they come to see us. And that really, you know, you saying to them, you don't need that test. I don't think your symptoms are related to what I'm saying is, you know, a heart problem. And I think people really do feel better. And they, you don't have to order that test to tell them that. So I would just say, uh, more care is not always better. And uh, I think we have, um, we could be doing much better in terms of, of how we spend our money. We have a lot of different directions to go in, and I uh, think it will take a culture change from where we are now. I hope that we are moving in the right direction and that we are not um, upside down, stuck in the sand. I will end here, and um, thank you for your attention and leave any time for a few minutes for questions. just when you did the thing on the devices because someone passed on that documentary that came out this year called The Bleeding Edge, which really kind of talked about how devices come through and what they don't have to go through and then in order to get approved and, and how, you know, we don't necessarily know when we're even recommending to patients or when patients are getting that these may not have been devices that have been tested even to the scrutiny like of medications and stuff. So it was kind of an interesting documentary that <coughs> exposed a lot of what is going on and how devices come to market. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I hope the bleeding edge does you know, inform more people. And you know, I thought about different, you know, what would it take? I mean, I worked in Congress thinking, you know, could Congress sort of and make improvements, like, but I didn't come away thinking that would be the answer because Congress is very susceptible to lobbying efforts and not really hearing from patients. And actually, I don't think even the patients that a lot of patients were hearing from are industry-funded um, patients and patient groups. So I, I think the bleeding edge, I don't know, it's available on Netflix. Right, yeah. Now, and actually, I understand the Library of Congress is 
collecting stories related to the bleeding edge, and so they're, they have record. They will record people that have had device implant problems and make a permanent record. I didn't have time to go into all that, but another problem is that we don't collect adverse event data. And so, you know, I showed you a little bit in malaria. I mean, other countries actually collect, you know, data that is publicly available where you can look at what the problems are from, from adverse device events. So the bleeding edge tries to draw attention to that. I, I think it's a great documentary. Yes. I think one of your last slides said the environment is more conducive than ever like to, to thinking as you're thinking here. And I thought to myself, really? Uh, <laughs> what, what is your take right now on our ability to get the FDA to do more? It seems like it isn't. So. <laughs> I try to be optimistic. You know? I, I say that and it gets better. Um, I mean, the FDA, particularly in the last year or so, has clearly not... Um, signaling any interest in, in more evidence. And actually, even starting with the last administration, the 21st Century Cures Act, you know, which, you know, like, cures are going to fall out of the sky when we approve drugs and devices more quickly, which seems to be the major intent of that act. Um, and the idea was to have more breakthrough uh, categories to get things on the market quickly. Um, so... I don't know that the FDA at this time is going to make a lot of changes, although they are responsive. I mean, I do think they are very responsive to wanting to do the right thing, and that's why I'm hopeful, as I just asked about the bleeding edge, that if they hear from more patients and physicians who are demanding you know, more evidence and more um, adverse event record regulations and uh, recording, that there's some hope for improvement. <coughs> In terms of being more optimistic, though, it was more about that there's a lot of models out for alternative payment models. The accountable care organizations that um, started here at Dartmouth and uh, other payment models may bring us. And as we're now approaching 20%, I keep thinking maybe you know, people will really want to make some changes. It's just very hard. It's a lot harder to shrink than it is to expand. What's been the response from professional societies or patient advocacy groups to these information? Have they been supportive in saying, for example, in malaria trial, cardiology groups come out and said we should stop using it with better evidence, or are they pushing back? So, you know, I I don't know how much was related to that publication, although I do think it, it did bring a lot of the problems of malaria into public discussion and, and did, perhaps they were considering the registry, I don't know, before that, but the, re the professional societies did respond with launching a registry of patient devices and the company responded by saying they were going to be collecting data. But as I said, that's still on the market. I think um, it's been mixed. I mean, sometimes the professional societies close ranks and say, you know, we don't want any studies and feel very threatened because this is the model and how we do things. And sometimes they are more reflective and sort of look and say, yes, how can we do things better? Um, and the same for patients and public advocacy. 
I just, my, my concern, you know, from my years on NetCap and other groups is a lot of the patients that come to those meetings are sent there by the companies. I mean, you, you know, they, they travel there by the company, by the, and you're not really hearing from patients. You're, you know, it's essentially you're hearing what the company, I mean, they've often written out statements for those patients, and they come up and say they're representing patients. And in fact, when I um, recently saw um, some CMS coverage people that had run Metcalf at a, the ACC meeting was talking about, uh, I think it was the Tavra battle, whether they're expanding coverage for Tavra, he said, well, we've heard from a lot of patients that really want us to do that. And yeah, I, I think there's a hand of companies. And so I think there is potential for Congress and us to have a lot more patient advocacy, but it really has to be independent voices. And you know, often these are not people that have the means or resources to go to Baltimore and spend the day to talk about that. So I think there's a lot more to do. Yeah. <laughs> 